There can be no dispute that Syria used banned chemical weapons, violated its obligations under the Chemical Weapons Convention, and ignored the urging of the UN Security Council. That, of course, was Donald Trump explaining his decision to order missile strikes on a Syrian airbase in retaliation for the country's use of chemical weapons. The strikes have already become a major political and foreign policy issue, but they are also sparking important legal questions. Did the president violate either international or U.S. law? We're going to ask two experts in the field. We have Michael Glennon. He's a professor at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. And William Banks, he is the director of the, Nas- of the Institute for National Security and Counter- Counterterrorism at Syracuse-, Syracuse University Law School. Uh, welcome to you both. Um, Bill um, and-, and Mike, you can jump in here, too, if, if, if you want to. But can you explain what your understanding is of what basis the president and, and his administration have articulated uh, to-, to say that he was authorized to, to order these strikes? Well, the administration so far has done very little to explain the legal basis for the strikes. The statement uh, last night talked about the purpose being to deter Assad from using chemical weapons and also made mention of the fact that the strike it was deemed to be proportionate to uh, the underlying uh, cause, which was the chemical weapons attack. But neither of those offers much of a legal explanation. Well, Mike, what what would the president have to show, say, under international law to justify a strike like this? Well, under the United Nations Charter, uh, use of force or threat of force uh, is prohibited absent an armed attack against a state. And when a state is the victim of an armed attack, it can seek assistance from other states. But there's no claim that the United States was acting in this latter capacity of uh, collective self-defense, coming to aid anybody as a third party. The question is whether humanitarian intervention, so-called, is permissible under international law. And the answer under the Charter, of course, is no. There There are two possibilities. One is the Security Council authorizes the use of force, and the other is that you're acting self uh, under under uh, Article 51 uh, in response to an armed attack for purposes of self-defense. And neither one of those rationales applies here. Bill, what do you think about about that interpretation of the the UN Charter? I think I think some people like Harold. Co have a little broader interpretation of uh, of uh, what countries are allowed to do. What what do you think? Well, I think Mike's absolutely correct about the Charter. Harold and some others do advance the idea that humanitarian intervention might, at sometimes, be permitted. I think Harold takes a pretty nuanced view and and would allow a humanitarian operation only under certain very carefully uh, circumscribed uh, limits. And, you know, there have been some cases, Kosovo in 1999, uh, Syria uh, in 2011, uh, where you might argue that one of the rationales for acting on behalf of the United States was humanitarian intervention. But in, in Libya in 2011, the U.N. Security Council had acted, just as Mike suggested they, they would have to, to enable an action like this. 
And in Kosovo, I think most observers at the time concluded that the United States had done the right thing but had acted in violation of international law. That may be what happened here. Well, Mike, you know, if the so it sounds as though the president perhaps should have gone to the at least under the convention should have gone to the U.N. and asked the Security Council to authorize this. Um, but in a situation like this, is that really practical if you've got a. You know, you've got a situation where there's nobody really on the ground who can ask for help in a lot of ways. Everybody's fighting. The, the U.S. isn't really allied with anybody in Syria right now. And um, the, you know, but somebody's got to stop Assad from using chemical weapons. So is it really practical to say you should go through that sort of international, um, that sort of international procedure? Well, it's, it's practical in the sense that, of course, there's no emergency uh, if the objective is to deter the use of chemical weapons and to punish uh, Assad, that could be done a week from now, and the Security Council could conceivably authorize it within a week. So the the problem is not practicality; the the problem is political. There's a <laughs> a Russian veto that inevitably would be confronted. So you'd be in a situation, as Bill pointed out, rather like Kosovo in 1999, where you're confronting massive human rights violations that's that's not really i think disputable at this point but uh, uh the, the paralysis of the security council and the the unfortunate reality is that uh the international legal regime as it exists today doesn't adequately deal with these humanitarian crises Bill, what do we do about that? We only have about a minute left uh, now. But, but I mean, if, if Mike is right, um, uh, that, that there is this political paralysis, and, you know, it's certainly uh, highly likely the Russians would have vetoed any Security Council resolution. Uh, you know, is, is there just no way around that in, in terms of practicalities in international law? Well, I think Mike is correct, but there are some things that we could have done and that we could still do uh, or should have done and still could do. One is to get the support of some allies. There, there was no, inter- no announcement of support from our friends and allies before the fact or after the fact last night. Uh, and the second thing is that he could have gone to Congress to add some legitimacy to this. As Mike said, in a week's time or less, the Security Council could have met. I dare say Congress could have done the same. And judging from the reactions this morning and last night, the Republican Congress would have supported an authorization for the president to undertake these uh, actions. We're talking about the legal basis for, or perhaps lack of legal basis, for the missile strikes on Syria last night. Our guests are Michael Glennon of the Fletcher School at Tufts University and William Banks of Syracuse University Law School. Um, Mike, the, I, I have some talking points from the White House here. Uh, one of the things in terms of their legal basis, and one of the things they point to is a 2011 opinion issued by Barack Obama's Justice Department, the Office of Legal Counsel, as a basis for the uh, in, in intervention in Libya. In your mind, does that, does that uh, document help the Trump administration out at all here? It may, but I think the most important pronouncement to come from Barack Obama was the statement that he made uh, just before he was elected president as a candidate for office. He gave the best one-sentence summary of the president's independent power, I think, that anybody has given. Here's what he said. The president does not have power under the Constitution to unilaterally authorize a military attack in a situation that does not involve an actual or imminent threat to the nation. 
there is no actual or imminent threat to the United States posed by Syria today. There was not uh, three days ago before we launched this attack. The question uh, that he that he uh, pointed to is whether there's an emergency, and this is the issue that Bill touched upon you know, just just before the break. Clearly, uh, if the president wanted to, he could go to the Congress. There's there's no uh, set of exigent circumstances that required that this strike be launched uh, when it was. Uh, it, there's there's plenty of time to hold hearings and hear experts' views, pro and con. It may be a good idea. It may not. But the bottom line is, if the president is going to expose the United States to the risk of involvement in a large war or the risk of a a retaliation against American forces or civilians, unless there's a, unless there's an emergency, he's got to go and get congressional approval first. Well, Bill, the the president and some of the Republican supporters of of the president's actions here are pointing to you know Article Two of the Constitution and his power as Commander in Chief, and also the um, and also the uh, the War Powers Act that he's going to go to Congress afterwards to to get authorization for further action. Is that uh, what is the legal framework here for what the president's supposed to do in terms of involving Congress? Well, the president used military force on behalf of the United States, and he did so unilaterally without either seeking the authorization of or the, at least the, the consultation of Congress. As we know from our you know, civics education as children, the, the use of force by the United States follows a process that's very clearly stated in the Constitution. The Congress authorizes, and then the president carries out the will of Congress. That didn't happen in this case. And as we noted before the break, he, he certainly could go to Congress for that authority. It's, it's important for the listeners to understand the difference between this military operation and the ones that President Trump, like the president before him, President Obama taken with respect to ISIL uh, in Syria, those operations, whatever one thinks of them, were authorized by an authorization for the use of military force enacted by Congress a few days after 9-11. It's a bit of a stretch in many of us, our views to apply that to ISIL, but there was at least uh, authority on paper for military operations. This one here was out of whole cloth. Mike, it's, I hear you and Bill both sort of making an argument about you know the the, the constitutional powers of, of of the respective branches, but haven't as a matter of practice haven't uh, we sort of ceded to the president and by we I mean uh, in part Congress and the courts uh, you know an awful lot of power to act very quickly and then maybe go back to Congress and, and retroactively uh, get authorization for, for for what they just did. No, I don't think so. First of all, when you look at those incidents, you find that almost all of them involved fights with pirates, clashes with cattle rustlers, trivial naval engagements, very minor uses of force that didn't risk involving the United States in a large-scale war. That's really the issue here. Um, what is the risk that is incurred on behalf of the nation as a whole? And that's what distinguishes all these other incidents, there are just a, a, a small handful of incidents like this that create this level of risk. And let's be clear, the risk is substantial. There are uh, American troops on the ground in Syria, in Iraq, uh, at the, in Syria, uh, air base, in Turkey, right across the border. 
this is uh, this is a risky action, and it's the kind of risk that ought to be decided upon by the elected representatives of the people. I want to thank our guest. That was Michael Glennon talking. He is a professor at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. And William Banks, uh, he is director of the Institute for National Security and Counterterrorism at Syracuse Law School. We've been talking about the missile strike ordered by Donald Trump against uh, against Syria and uh, discussing whether there was legal authorization for that. And uh, there are certainly some questions that I have a feeling we are going to revisit uh, in the coming weeks.